we recommend mowing plots once a year during the late summer period, whenever clover and other perennial species are at their worst. And don't worry about mowing it all summer long. Mowing only reduces forage biomass. It does not improve the quality. It also decreases deer use of the plot. So basically by mowing, you're just decreasing the amount of forage that's available, which is then decreasing the use of the plot by deer. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we got another great episode lined up for you today that I know a lot of you are going to enjoy because every time we have Mark Turner on our podcast talking about food plots, it ends up being one of our most downloaded episodes. Uh, Mark is a deer researcher at the University of Tennessee working on his PhD under Dr. Craig Harper, and I know a lot of you guys will recognize that name. But a big part of Mark's research is focusing on food plots. So we had Mark on a couple episodes back for kind of part one of our food plot masterclass. And today we're getting back on to to finish that out for part two, where we'll dive into um, the species selection process. We'll look at annuals versus perennials, summer versus fall food plots, um, understanding the seed labels, which is very important when you're when you're doing food plots, uh, weed control and why you absolutely shouldn't be mowing your clover plots more than once during those spring and summer months. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA partner Savage Arms. Savage Arms is one of the largest manufacturers of hunting rifles and shotguns, delivering innovative products for more than 125 years. And I, I know I'm, I'm personally looking at picking up one of their Axis XP models for this fall which is a real good mix between quality and affordability. Right now, I'm looking at going with the, the 308 caliber, but hey, I am open to suggestions. If you want to drop a recommendation in the review section, if you're listening on Apple Podcast, hey, just, just let me know what you think. What, what's your favorite deer caliber? I'd love to hear and love to hear your reasons on why I should uh, choose that specific caliber. And yeah, I might read some of those out on the next uh, next episode coming up. So. Be sure to take time to do that. And hey, if you want to learn more about Savage's complete line of rifles and shotguns, be sure to check them out at savagearms.com. Hey, I want to give a big shout out this week to everyone who contributed to our giving day last Wednesday, May 10th. Uh, We had over 350 donors that supported the NDA on our second annual giving day, helping us to raise over $125,000 to go towards our mission of ensuring the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So we're extremely excited about that and uh, just extremely grateful for everyone who stepped up to help make that happen. Uh, One more thing before we jump on the phone here with Mark, Uh, we're doing another free giveaway for members of our email list. Uh, This time we're actually giving away an Alps Outdoors Motive Trail Camera Backpack. So I know turkey seasons are wrapping up across the country, so it's uh, very soon. It's, it'll be time to start getting those trail cameras out for the upcoming deer season. If I know some of you have had them out since last deer season, uh, but a lot of us kind of wait till those summer months when antlers start developing, and that's coming up here real soon. So 
this backpack from Alps will help you keep your cameras and your batteries and your SD cards all organized. And all you have to do to enter is head over to our website at deerassociation.com slash Alps, and that's A-L-P-S, and enter your information into the giveaway form. We'll draw a winner sometime in June. So, uh, yeah, just be looking out for that. And guys, with that, we're going to go ahead and jump on the phone once again with Mark Turner to kind of finish out our food plot planning masterclass. Well, hey, Mark, uh, welcome back once again to the the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, I feel like we just talked here recently. Yeah, yeah, we did. (laughs) (laughs) But I know I mentioned, you know, in that that first episode we did or, or the most recent one that we would try to do a part two. And the, the first one has had such a great response. I figured, hey, the, you know, the sooner we could follow up on it, the better, while everything was still kind of fresh on, on the listener's mind. So I appreciate you being willing to quickly kind of jump back on here and, and talk more about food plots. Yeah, absolutely. Always happy to do it with the caveat that, you know, during the months of late March, April and May, you know, it's sometimes nice to leave the schedule before, uh, before lunch open. But uh, aside from that, you know, absolutely have to be on here anytime. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know you were you were watching the weather to see if you were going to be able to get some burning in. And yeah, well, yeah, uh, <laughs> between <laughs> between turkey hunting and, and in the mornings uh, and burning in the afternoon, sometimes it can be busy this time of year. But uh, yeah, we uh, were not able to burn today. And um, so not in turkey hunt today. So all good. Well, good deal. Yeah, like I said, I, pre- I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, while while the first episode, we mainly focused on the kind of the preparation aspect of food plots from site selection to soil testing and soil amendments. But, uh, you know, in this one, I'd like to dive more into kind of the planting process and the maintenance process and some some species selection and, and that kind of stuff to really give the listeners kind of a, a start to finish guide to planting you know, whether it be their first food plot or their next food plot. So that's kind of the the goal with this. Uh, before we get into discussing some some species or mixes that you recommend, though, I, I'd like you to just start by by talking annuals versus perennials. And can can you kind of break down the differences between the two and and when you might want to plant one over the other? Absolutely. Yeah, because that's something that a lot of people have misconceptions about or um, you know, strong beliefs and, you know, some percentage of their food plots should be annual, some should be perennial. Um, and really, there's no cut and dry answer and, and there's different situations to use each. Um, but, you know, at, at its most basic form, an annual plot is one that you would have to plant every year, or I should say an annual species. Um, they, uh, they germinate, grow, flower, and produce seed all within uh, some, you know, some period of the year. So, uh, some common annual species would be things like wheat, oats, turnips, soybeans, corn. Um, these are all species that that you know you're not thinking about maintaining that plot and that species for a long time without planting it again. Um, there are several species of annual clover as well, um, such as crimson clover and arrowleaf clover. Um, you know those you may be able to maintain the plot for several years without replanting, but that's because they reseed themselves. Um, it's not because the plant you know, remains actively growing year round. So that's kind of the annual food plot side of things. Um, There are several biennial species that we think about whenever we're planting uh, food plots. And those are those are species that 
basically require two years to grow and produce seed and then die. Uh, the main one that we really think about is red clover, but just for simplicity's sake here, I'm just going to lump that in with perennial. Um, and perennials are those plants that you would plant one year and then they 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 grow and they flower and they produce produce seed in most cases um, or in all cases, I guess I should say, uh, within you know a year or two. But they continue growing, so they're not just you know live and die within that same year. Uh, you're able to maintain those, you know, same plants growing within a plot for, for several years, you know, in some cases upwards of uh, five to eight years uh, in the instance of a well-managed perennial clover plot. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the main breakdown there. Um, again, annuals are just shorter lived species. Perennials are obviously longer lived. Um, now within the annual species, we also have uh, kind of a different breakdown of warm and cool season. So warm season annuals would be things like corn and soybeans or cowpeas or joint vetch that we're thinking about planting during the spring, typically, sometimes summer, but you know, typically we're thinking about planting in the spring and they're going to go through their whole life cycle and uh, be dead by the time it frosts. So whether that means that it flowers and, you know, ends its life cycle or in the case of something like an indeterminate species, that just continues growing until it gets killed by frost. And, and that's something like a cowpea or um, a forage soybean is are both those are indeterminate. Um, so that's kind of your warm season annual. And then we also have cool season annuals, which would be things like um, arrowleaf clover, crimson clover, wheat, uh, turnips, radishes. Those are plants that we would plant in the fall. They will you know, grow throughout the fall, grow through the winter. And then, you know, if, if the deer don't browse them so heavily that, you know, that they're just eating down to the ground and there's nothing left, especially in the case of things like turnips, um, they will, you know, go, go to seed in the spring if you allow them. So, you know, we think about wheat seed heads, things like that, that should be seeding out right now. Um, they're finishing their life cycle. And so, um, that's kind of your breakdown on warm and cool season as well within that annual plant category. Um, the vast majority of perennial species are cool season annuals, um, perennial, at least in terms of food plot species, um, perennial peanut is really the only one that comes to mind. That's a food plot species. That's a warm season annual, but that's not or perennial, excuse me, but that's not one that many people are planning. So, um, you can kind of just disregard that. And, um, generally we're talking about warm and cool season annuals and then cool season perennial plantings. And I guess, is there any other specific circumstances where, you know, you might want to plant an annual versus a perennial or, or vice versa, or is it just yeah. really a matter of preference? Yeah, absolutely. So really the thing that you need to think about is, um, and this, this comes down to as well with species selection, you're trying to fill nutritional gaps um, or provide some foraging opportunity that's going to attract deer to a site for you to be able to view and hunt them. Um, so that's kind of the two main goals of food plots are to feed deer and to attract them so that you can shoot them, which there's nothing wrong with doing that. And, you know, that, that's one of the fun things about food. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you don't need to feel bad about that. I mean, you're benefiting the animal and, you know, getting harvest opportunities while you do that. But if you just think about it that way, there are different windows that you're providing forage with warm season annuals and cool season annuals. And then there's different windows you're providing forage uh, whenever we think about planting perennial plots. For example, the the main stress period that, at least for deer in the South, that we think about 
is that late summer time frame. Uh, let's just say July, August, uh, even sometimes into September, but you know, mainly July and August. We're thinking about the time of year whenever typically uh, vegetation, native vegetation, is maturing. Um, it's typically fairly dry, so um, you know, if there are clover plots or something like that, they're typically not growing all that much. Um, and the does are also lactating. The bucks are growing antlers. So we have this window right there uh, called the late summer stress period. That's the perfect window to be filled with warm season annual plots. When, when bucks first start growing antlers in April and May, soybeans may not even be in the ground yet, depending on what state you're in. But those soybeans or other warm season annual plants are providing forage later on in the summer that things that might provide forage early in the summer, like perennial clover, are, are simply not doing because it's getting dry. So, you know, in that example of that stress period, um, the warm season annual is providing, you know, that forage late in the summer. Um, conversely, from a hunting perspective, if you if you like hunting, you know, deer early season, and I, I actually tend to like, you know, hunting them during early bow season, I, you know, have found that it's relatively, or, you know, it's, have a, have a relatively high success rate in terms of at least seeing, you know, mature bucks on those food sources during the early bow season. And if you're in a state that allows an early bow season, say in September, uh, warm season plots can be a great place to uh, to target bucks as well as does for harvest during that, you know, early portion of the bow season. So that's kind of your window you're looking at with warm season annuals. Um, with cool season annuals, you're really more thinking about providing forage, uh, from say, depending on the state you're in and depending what species, um, let's just say the fall time frame primarily with, with an exception I'll get to here in a second. So if we plant the plot sometime in September, you know, it, with species that grow relatively quickly, such as wheat included in the mix, as well as, you know, several uh, brassicas and, and radishes, those grow fairly quickly as well. We can provide forage from, let's just say late September uh, all the way through the end of deer season. And that's going to be forage that, you know, not only is you know beneficial to the deer um, in terms of you know having something green and actively growing during that time of year. Um, it's not necessarily a nutritional stress period for them, but of, of course we're trying to elevate their nutritional level throughout the year. So that's great with cool season annuals. But you know, really thinking about the time of year that we're targeting for hunting, um, they're they're perfect for that. And if you include something in the mix like an annual clover that provides forage. Um, in the spring following, you know, that hunting opportunity. So if you include crimson clover, for example, you've got great forage opportunities in March and April. So you kind of extend that window that you're providing forage with the cool season annuals. Um, so that's kind of cool season annuals, like I said, providing some forage during hunting season, but really providing, you know, good attraction opportunities. And then you can include species that provide you forage in the spring to really bump up the nutritional level during a time when bucks are starting to grow antlers and does are, um, you know, finishing their fawns are finishing growing uh, before they give birth. And then, you know, right during that early lactation period as well. Um, and then finally we have perennial plots, which are not providing as much forage as cool season annuals during the hunting season. They're still attractive and, and obviously, you know, perennial clover plots are, um, great places to hunt, but they they just don't provide as much forage um, as an annual food plot can during that fall time period. But when they really shine is during that May June window, um, April, May, and June. You know that late spring, early summer time frame. 
whenever bucks buck antler growth is really you know hitting its peak and, and coming on strong uh, the does are trying to get ready for dropping their fawns then during that early lactation period you can provide literally tons of forage uh, relative to other plantings during that uh, late spring early summer time frame with your uh, perennial food plots um, at a time whenever for the most part, many of your annual species that you would have planted in the fall are kind of petering out and you might just be planting your warm season plot. So I like to think of perennials as really filling that window in the spring when your fall plots or your cool season plots are, uh, are finishing up, but your warm season plots, you're just now planting them and they're really not producing the tonnage that um, you might like to see. Okay. So it sounds like you know, obviously to, to maximize your efforts on a property, it, it would certainly be great to have some of each of these uh, to, to be able to provide that, that food sources at different times of the year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for the guy, for the guy that only has, you know, this one area on his property, is there a way to, to incorporate or utilize both, both warm and cool season plots in a, in a season? There, there are, um, you know, and, and it it's easy to fall back on the it depends answer. Um, I, th- I think, you know, first off, first and foremost, for, for somebody with limited acreage, um, the first thing is just recognizing that, you know, yes, you are benefiting deer by having, you know, food plots that provide nutrition. There's There's no question about that. But let's just be realistic. If you have, you know, 30 acres and you have one or two acres of food plots, those food plots can provide fantastic hunting opportunities that are that are great and they provide great wildlife viewing opportunities. And, you know, there's a lot of benefit and a lot to be said about managing plots. And, and you know, maybe two acres is, is too big. Maybe I should say a quarter acre or something like that. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of benefit to, to be had with those small food plots from a hunting perspective. But just being realistic, you're not going to increase antler size on a property with, you know, an acre or two acres of food plots on, you know, a piece that's, you know, even, even a hundred acres in size, you're, you're not going to be having an impact on deer enough nutritionally to really see an increase in antler size. And so that's kind of the first thing is just kind of being realistic with your objectives. Um, and if you're in a situation with small acreage like that, and you're, you know, wanting to, um, maximize your hunting opportunities while, you know, also providing some forage for deer, but being realistic that, you know, you're, you're probably not going to see some big increase in antler size, um, with, with having food plots out there, which is totally fine. Um, I think that the, the appropriate thing for a lot of people would be to focus on cool season plantings and focus on uh, cool season annual plantings and to focus on, um, maybe incorporating some perennial food plots into that as well. Um, if they really like bow hunting, you could, of course, always incorporate um, some warm season annual plantings. Uh, the problem is most of those warm season annuals, with the exception of joint batch, are so um, so susceptible to overgrazing that you really have to, you know, you really got to weigh what your objectives are. And that's why it's always important to come back to your objectives. If you're in a small acreage situation, you know, you, you realistically can't have an objective of, you know, feeding deer enough that you see a five inch increase in average Boone and Crockett score. That's not going to happen. Um, but if you like hunting during bow season, it might be worth planting some joint veg, for example, in a half acre food plot and then planting a cool season annual in another small food plot 
Um, and one of the benefits with, with the cool season plantings especially is they tend to be much more grazing tolerant. Um, so you can think about planting, you know, small areas like fire breaks or trails um, or, you know, if you're in a um, if you're in a woodland type situation, that's uh, especially one that's hardwoods. Um, heck, you can even go in there and, um, you know, after leaves drop and uh, top sow, you know, along a trail or something like that. You know, of course, you need to have some sunlight getting to the ground initially. But when the leaves drop, you're going to have full sun there. And uh, and, you know, I've seen plenty of instances where people have planted small areas like that with uh, cool season plantings just to provide a shot opportunity. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. But I think the main thing is just don't overcomplicate what your objectives are. If your objectives are just to have a place to shoot deer, then think about the time that you like to hunt and plant something that's attractive during that time. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with just thinking about it like that. Yeah. That, yeah. That definitely makes sense. And yeah, for some reason we, we, and I say we, cause I'm right there uh, with everybody else, but we, we deer hunters and, and food plotters, we, we seem to like to overcomplicate things sometimes. So. Oh, uh, ab- absolutely. And there's, <laughs> you know, it's so much fun. There's so many different things you can, uh, you know, mess with and, and tweak and plant. And I, I think that's part of the fun of it. But just don't get so overwhelmed. And I think this is something that happens. People get so overwhelmed with, you know, thinking about their um, what they're going to plant, how exactly they want to do it. And, you know, the reality is um, just keeping it relatively simple is oftentimes the best decision. And just just being realistic about what your goals and objectives are, because um, for a small landowner, the best thing you can do is just put your effort into making that plot the best it can be. And then, you know, use other tools such as um, the chainsaw or prescribed fire to manage the area around the plot so that that's also attractive um, because and then hunt the plot smart. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're thinking about hunting opportunities on a small property or a small food plot, it it doesn't matter what you have planted. If uh, if you are hunting it on the edge of the plot and spooking deer off of it, coming in and going out and blowing your wind across the plot and all the things that most people end up doing, then it doesn't matter what you have plant planted in there because they'll be attracted to it, but they're going to be in there at night. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're going to be one of those guys on the Facebook forums asking, how do I get this buck to show up in daylight on my food plot? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and there's no way to plant your way around that. Um, I, I just, I see that way too often. I really, you know, hunting strategy wise at the end of the day, it's like, I kind of break it down into, you know, there, there's there's different species that peak at different times. But really, you know, I think about for early early season, especially archery season in most states, you know, warm season annual plots are, are really coming on strong then for the most part. And they're, they can create great opportunities. And then from mid to late season, you know, if you're in the mid-south, um, something like a cereal grain and a clover um, can be a very attractive mixture for the rest of the season. Um, you know, for hunting during, you know, mid to late bow season, as well as muzzleloader and rifle season, uh, depending on the state you're in. And then obviously when you get into the Midwest and a little bit further North, you may be thinking about snow and you may want to incorporate some, um, grain crops such as either soybeans or corn into the, into the mix. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're really just, just trying to time the forage availability and, and attraction with when you want to hunt specifically. Yeah. Now, do you recommend, are you better off planting 
individual species and in, in separate plots, or do you recommend typically recommend some type of mix of species? It depends. Um, <laughs> I figured you was going to say it. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are, there are instances for both, and there's no right or wrong answer, um, really. But it just it totally depends on what you're trying to do. So, for example, um, for I guess I'll start with warm season plots, um, warm season annuals. If you're thinking about planting something like corn or soybeans, there's almost no reason to to include a mixture, um, given the herbicide technologies we have and the fact that the corn directly competes with if you mix corn and soybeans it directly they directly compete with each other for nutrients and uh, in fact dr harper um, several years ago did a project looking at forage production and um, as well as grain production and uh, he found that you know you're way better off planting an acre of corn and an acre of beans versus two acres of corn mixed with soybeans so um if, if you're thinking about that for a warm season plot that's that's absolutely something you should just plant by itself um, but if you're thinking about, um, doing a mixture of, let's just say cowpeas or, or thinking about planting cowpeas, for example, um, it may be appropriate to include some other forages such as joint vetch, which is a little bit more grazing tolerant, as well as something like so, uh, sunflowers for the cowpeas to vine up. Um, that's, that's a great mixture. When we think about cool season plantings, um, if, if I'm planting a brassica plot, I do plan a mixture, but I don't necessarily, um, you know, they're all either brassicas or radishes. So I might plant turnips and radishes or, and, and rape together, for example. But, uh, you know, and that's a mixture, but it's, you know, all relatively similar species. Um, sometimes, you know, it's you can plant the cereal grains by themselves, but typically I like to include a, a, a clover in there, an annual clover or several species of annual clover to kind of try to extend the grazing window. Um, the, the big take home message, I think, is just planting things that are compatible together. And in my opinion, avoiding the kitchen sink approach. There's a lot of food plot bags and blends that have, you know, 10 species on it or, you know, whatever the case is. Um, and, and, you know, there's something to be said about having some diversity of species. And, and we, you know, we'll commonly plant, um, let's just say, a wheat with two or three different types of annual clover. That's that's a very sensible blend. Um, the annual clovers all mature at different times, so we're kind of extending the forage window, providing the most forage for as long as possible into the late spring and early summer period. But there's no need to throw in, you know, other things like um, like you know some low rate of brassica or some uh, you know there's there's different types of cereal grains together. I mean, I think a lot of the time people look at a bag and if it's got more species listed on there, they view that as better. Um, and, and what you end up, you end up in a situation where two things happen. Number one, sometimes the species compete with each other. So um, for example, um, corn competes with soybeans if it's in a blend together. Um, if you plant uh, wheat with a brassica, the brassicas and the wheat kind of compete with each other a little bit. Um, on the other hand, if that doesn't happen, if everything goes well, you end up in a situation where you can't do anything for weed control. And especially for uh, warm season plots, not having weed control is a, is a big issue. So um, keep kind of keeping yourself open to where you have some opportunities for weed control um, in season 
you know, during that time when that plot's growing is, is a good, just a good general rule of thumb to have. So yeah, just, I, I think avoiding the kitchen sink approach and just kind of keeping, again, simplicity sometimes is best. And, you know, just being relatively common sense and thinking about how you, you know, are going to choose the species that you're planting can, can really go a long ways. Yeah, that's so funny. You were you were reading right off my notes here because that was exactly where I was going with my next question was the, those those uh, um, seed seed bags, uh, you know, commercial mixes that that like you said have everything but the kitchen sink in there. And I, I was I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that that very question. You see a lot of them. So I mean, is there ever any circumstance where you're planting, say, clover? with brassicas or is that typically just two separate plots that's typically just two separate plots um you know i've i've experimented with that before and it it works okay but typically what you end up seeing in a situation like that is you have patches where the brassicas outshade the clover and then you have patches that are a little bit more sparse where the clover does better um and it's growing between the brassicas you know I guess the way that I like to think of it is it's not that it can't work or or doesn't work. It's just about efficiency. And if I'm trying to grow, you know, let's just say turnips and radishes together, um, I want them to do as well as possible. And I don't want something else out there competing with them. Whereas if I'm trying to go grow clovers, um, I, I might mix that with wheat because those two species are relatively compatible together. And, uh, and that can kind of extend the foraging window. Um, to have some forage early from the wheat and then some forage later on from those annual clovers. So I really just like to think of it as, you know, trying to be as efficient as possible. It's it's not to say that you can't do it and it doesn't work. It's just that to be efficient with your plots, um, if you're planting something that grows as relatively large as a single uh, brassica does, um, you really need to give that plant the room to grow and, um, you're kind of just wasting money on seed whenever you throw a bunch of other clovers into the mix if you have a brassica plot. Gotcha. All right. And again, just just for emphasis, I because I, I'm, I'm sure somebody could send a picture right now and say, "Well, look at this plot." And, I, and I'm sure it looks <laughs> it looks great, and you can do it. It's just about if you're spending all this time and money, I would just rather have things you know such that every time I do a particular blend or a particular plot it's going to work out the same each time versus if you blend those two species together, you see pretty quickly that some patches are real thick with brassicas and there's no clover. Some, some patches, the brassicas are more sparse. The clover's doing really well. Um, so the plot may be green all the way across, but it's really variable and patchy. And, um, and again, you're shooting yourself in the foot weed control wise with, with that mix. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're planting them separately, it, it gives you the opportunity to, to rotate them out over, you know, the course of, of several years as well. Because I know, and I didn't even have this in my notes, but it, I brought it to mind. I've heard with brassicas, is there, are you not supposed to plant brassicas for so many years in a row? Is that? That's right. So the, the general recommendation from like a producer's um, standpoint, if somebody was growing these as a crop is actually like three years. Um, typically for a, from a food plotting perspective, um, I, I have, and have seen people get away with planting brassicas every other year and be very successful with that for a long time. So I think that's a good rule of thumb is just make sure you leave yourself at least one year in the mix because, um, as someone who actually, um, um, 
in the food plot column for quality whitetails. I think it was a year ago or something like that. I actually had a column about my first experience with uh, a fungal disease in brassicas. And I mean, it looked like you had sprayed the plot. I showed up oh, in yeah. November yeah. To, to hunt this acre uh, turnip and radish plot. And I got up in the stand and I was like, what, what's going on out there? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, there were no deer using it because all the plants were completely dead. So yep. yeah, yeah it's not something now. you want to have happen. <laughs> no, no. So uh, you've already touched on several of these, but before we moved on, I, I want you to just, I mean, what are, what are some of your, I guess, favorite mixes and, and you can, you know, mention some, some warm season and, and cool season, but what, what's some of your favorite uh, food plot mixes specifically, I guess, targeted for deer? Yeah. So for, uh, for, I'll start with the warm season annuals um, because that's something people are probably thinking about right now. Um, if you're in the mid South and Southward from there, in my mind, the I hesitate to say the best because it all depends. But the mix that I find myself coming back to and really liking the most is a mixture of joint vetch and cowpeas. Um, typically, we'll plant about 20 pounds per acre of joint vetch with uh, 25 pounds per acre of cowpeas. And that really for a, you know, a plot that's not huge where you're going to be able to get away with soybeans, which let's just face it, that's most people's properties. They don't have a plot large enough that they can plant soybeans with the deer density that they have. Um, this is almost as good as it gets because you have the cowpeas that come on early and produce a lot of forage during that early portion of the summer. The joint vetch takes a long time to start growing, but it is much more grazing resistant. And you end up basically with great forage availability from say a month after you plant all the way through uh, until you get frost in the fall. Um, that really to me is just about as good as it gets for a, a warm season plot. Um, joint vetch is a little bit expensive, you know, per, per bag of seed. But uh, whenever you think about whenever it, it's actually relatively comparable to something like soybeans, when you think about it on a per acre basis. Um, so it's, it's not as expensive, but, Typically, it's about 200 to 250 bucks for a 50 pound bag, but that 50 pound bag plants two and a half acres. So, if you extrapolate that back out, it's not as expensive as it initially sounds, although it is still a little expensive. But um, I, I really, really like that mix. That's that's probably my favorite uh, warm season species mix. And it's, it's really nice because you can spray it with clethodim post emergence if you have grass issues, and uh, you can also spray it pre emergence with um with uh pursuit um which is mazethapir and uh, and get really good pre-emergence control of many grasses as well as forb species okay so that's kind of my warm season annual mix what about what about cool season yeah so um for cool season annuals i i guess i'll um you know i, I like brassicas um, I like typically a, a, a mixture of, of turnips and radishes um, that can do very well. But um, even even going, you know, if, if I just had to pick one, I think if I had to pick two, one would be brassicas. Um, and then the one that I would pick as my top one would be a mixture of wheat, crimson clover and arrowleaf clover. This is such a easy, efficient mix. Um, and it kind of times itself perfectly to where if you plant it in September, the wheat comes on strong, the crimson clover is a little behind it, and then the air leaf even beyond behind that. And by the time that wheat is starting to seed out, 
um, or even just bolt, the crimson clover in March and April is producing a bunch of forage. And then that arrowleaf clover hangs on pretty late into June before it goes to seed and flowers. And you really extend the foraging window to where um, if you planted, for example, uh, just just warm season annuals in this instance and cool season annuals, if you planted that mix with a mixture of cowpeas and joint vetch on separate halves of a plot, um, you would have forage in that plot pretty much year round in one half or the other. Uh, so that it's, it's just a really good mix from that perspective. Um, the other thing I really like about both those species of uh, annual clovers is that they reseed extremely well. Um, so oftentimes you can end up with not having to plant the plot for um, two to three or even longer uh, years after that initial planting, as long as you manage it appropriately. So with that mixture, what I'll do is uh, I'll basically, you know, plant it initially that first year, let it do its thing, go uh, and after the arrowleaf clover dies sometime, usually late June, early July, I'll just kind of let the plot be. Um, sometimes I'll go out there and spot spray weeds if I see anything that's a big problem, or I may even broadcast spray because nothing's growing actively within that uh, plot that you planted during that July, August time frame. And then, and then, you know, typically sometime in late August, I'll spray the whole plot and then I've had great success mowing it. I've had great success disking it. I've had the best success burning it. So um, you can, again, you can either just leave it be, you can mow it, you can disc it, you can burn it um, just to do something. But, you know, typically you get best results if you do something to kind of stir things up and get the seed on the ground uh, and, you know, get good seed to soil contact. At that point, your next rainfall event, boom, all those crimson and arrowleaf clover seeds are germinated and your plot is as lush as can be. And in fact, you know, usually your second and third year are actually better than the first because there's so many more seeds out there than when you initially planted it. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of that. I, I love that reseeding annual clover mix. I've, I've had, I have some plots that I've maintained for uh, four or five years without having to replant it. And they look, you know, just as good as they did year one. Um, in terms of perennial clovers, or I guess I should say perennial um, food plots, Really, just a simple mixture of white, red, and uh, chicory. Uh, white clover, red clover, and chicory can be really great. Um, the red clover and chicory are, you know, somewhat optional. Um, I really like red clover because it hangs on a little bit later into the summer than white clover does. And when I'm talking about white clover, you know, Durana is included in that. Uh, Ladino is another common variety. So, you know, there's several varieties of white clover, but... Um, you know, the red clover kind of gives you a little bit of a bump um, during that early growing season, um, when, you know, after the point at which white clover is flowered and kind of fading a little bit going into that, you know, summer dormancy, whenever it's really hot and dry. And then the chicory also adds a lot of forage during that summer time frame um, to where, you know, it's the time of year that uh, the, the less tolerant white clover is a little bit less drought tolerant. So, um, it's not going to be doing as well midsummer. What's what's the difference between the the Ladino and the Durano clovers? Yeah, so um, it's just two different varieties. Um, Ladino clover is, I guess you would call it an older variety of uh, white clover that you know is your uh, kind of typical. Mo- most of the you know, I guess the specific varieties within that. Um, most of the Ladino clovers are relatively large leafed. 
So, you know, they have a large leaf on them. Um, they're, they're typically more, um, trying to think of how to word this best. Um, they're not quite as tolerant to rough conditions as Durana is. Um, Durana has a, has a smaller leaf and it, um, it tends to be a little bit more drought tolerant as well as, um, tolerant of, you know, rough conditions with regards to nutrients in the soil and things like that. Um, Durana can outcompete weeds a little bit better, but, um, on average, a well-managed Ladino plot probably produces a little bit more forage than Durana just because the plants are, the leaves are a little bit bigger, but it's not a substantial enough difference to really notice. And, and we really like Durana and we, we plant a lot of Durana, um, because just because it is, uh, so much more tolerant of drought compared to Ladino. Oh, okay. You really, yeah. you know, you're kind of splitting hairs at that point. I mean, neither one is this, um, neither one is some miracle clover that's, you know, going to really change the game for you. Um, they, they, they both during summer are, are looking pretty rough. Uh, if it's been hot and dry for, you know, a month. <laughs> so it's, it's not like one's going to be, you know, bright neon green and the other is just going to be dead. They, they both take it pretty hard during the summer, but, um, come out of it pretty well as long as you manage weeds appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the wheat and the annual clover mix. I know, you know, I have people come to me knowing, knowing what I do and that I work for the NDA and, you know, asking about what to plant in their food plot. And I know they're wanting, you know, just some kind of magical mix that I'm going to tell them that's, that's going to, you know, make everything uh, better. But, you know, it, it, I end up going back to the, the same old, you know, wheat and annual clovers and, and they're probably thinking, is that the best you got? But yeah, it's hard to beat. <laughs> that's- <laughs> That's exactly right. I sometimes feel like I'm beating a dead horse whenever I talk about the cowpea joint vetch mix and then the wheat and annual clovers. But it's just it's so hard to beat beat either of those for their respective time periods in most instances. But um, especially for the average guy, when it comes to um, planting a, a cool season plot, I mean, you really just cannot beat that cool season uh, annual clover mix with a little bit of wheat um, just because. Uh, not only forage production, but I mean, efficiency. I mean, there's nothing else that you can plant um, that for so cheap can provide forage for so many years because with perennial plots, you're typically talking about spraying them several times a year with different herbicides and, and, you know, mowing them once a year. Um, That cool season annual plot, you can literally have it reseed every single year until, you know, weed issues become just beyond out of control or something like that. But you know, all you have to do is go out there and spray it and then either mow it or disc it or burn it. And you've got your plot reseeded with, with no additional effort, two visits to the field and uh, a few dollars worth of herbicide and diesel fuel. And you've got your plot reseeded without having to add additional seed every year. Um, You know, of course, if, if deer pressure is such that it doesn't go to seed, then that's an issue. But um, for, for most folks, you can be very successful managing those annual clover and wheat food plots for, for several years without having to replant. Yeah. Hey, w- one thing, and I'm going to have to watch my time here because uh, all these questions keep popping into my head as we're talking, but uh, when, when would you, you know, talking about wheat, when would you plant wheat versus cereal rye versus oats? Is, is you know, one better than the other or what, what different circumstances might you use one over the other? Yeah. So, 
all three of those cereal grains have a a place, and it really just comes down to it depends, just like everything else. Um, neither one, none of the three are magical or going to be you know super big game changers. Um, they just may work a little well, or excuse me, may work a little better or worse depending on the circumstance. So um, wheat's kind of the one that we fall back on a lot, just because it's readily available, it's cheap, it's easy to grow. Um, and it produces a lot of forage um, early on during the during the year. Um, a couple of the other benefits to wheat are the fact that um, if you buy an onless variety or a beardless variety, um, the ons on a wheat seed head are are those you know little prickly um, bristles that kind of come off the uh, the end of each seed. And if you buy a variety that's onless or beardless. Um, then you just have to tell the co-op that and, or wherever you get seed from and, and they should be, they should be able to accommodate it. it sometimes you got to talk to them a little bit cause they may not know what exactly you're doing, but most of the time you can, you can buy beardless or onless wheat at your co-op and, uh, that allows, you know, the deer really select for that after the wheat seeds out. Um, turkeys will also use those readily. So you gain some benefit by, you know, producing a grain that the animals eat in the spring and not just having forage, whereas uh, deer don't eat rye or oat seed heads. Um, turkeys may eat oat seed heads, but really don't like rye seed, head, seed heads that much. Um, the other benefit to wheat is that the structure of it is, you know, pretty much perfect uh, for a turkey brood. Um, or excuse me, for, for turkeys, not necessarily for a turkey brood. That depends on the, the planting rate. But in terms of the height, it doesn't grow so tall that turkeys don't feel, you know, comfortable being out in there. Uh, that's really the issue with rye um, is that it grows a lot taller, uh, which may be an issue. So kind of the benefits to wheat, just to sum that up, it's relatively easy to get. Uh, deer can eat the seed heads as well as turkeys. And uh, the height of it is good that it works well in a mixture with other plants. Rye, um, benefits to rye, the times that I would use rye are if I'm in a situation where I'm trying to build organic matter in the soil. Um, because rye does produce a lot more biomass. If I'm on a site that is um, really poor, uh, such as an old logging deck or something like that, and I haven't gotten a chance to amend the soil as well as I should have, or the seed bed's a little rough, or you know whatever the case is, just generally rough conditions, rye will tend to do a little bit better than uh, wheat or oats. Um, Rye is also the most cold tolerant of the three. So if you're you know, a little bit further north, that's another added benefit. Um, downsides of rye, it grows so tall in the spring, you end up with all this material that you have to deal with. And that probably you know, prevents some species such as turkeys from using the plots as much. Finally, we have oats. Um, benefits to oats. Number one, it's technically the most attractive out of the three. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, um, you will see a little bit more attraction to oats compared to the other two if they're planted within the same plot. Now, are you going to see more deer on an oat plot versus a wheat plot if there's no oats planted anywhere near you? Probably not. But nonetheless, deer do select for oats the most out of the cereal grains. Um, another benefit to oats is that the structure is relatively similar to wheat. So turkeys can get out in there. They do eat the seed. Uh, deer don't eat the seed heads, but but turkeys will. Um, downside to oats, they're not as cold tolerant and, and they also do not do as well, um, no-till top sowed. So you really typically have to, you know, conventionally prepare the seed bed and, um, you know, 
either disc those in or drill them in or something like that. They, they don't tend to germinate as well as wheat or oat uh, or rye on top of the soil surface. So again, there's, there's minor differences between the three. Um, I tend to tend to use oats and, and wheat the most and generally only use rye if I'm in a situation where um, the soil's really rough and I haven't gotten a chance to amend nutrients or something like that. Um, but just the structure of rye gets so tall in the spring that um, that can be an issue for, for both turkeys as well as for, you know, dealing with all that material on the plot if you don't have heavy equipment. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> well, let's, let's move into actually purchasing the seed and specifically about the, the seed, understanding the seed label. Because uh, I think there's sometimes some confusion there or, or just some things that get overlooked. People, you know, they'll know that maybe they need 10, 10 pounds of this seed to, to plant in their food plot. So they go buy exactly a 10 pound bag and go out there and plant it and, and don't get the desired results. Can you talk about the information that's on that seed label and, and you know, why it's important for, for even us food plotters to kind of understand what all that means when we're planting our food plot? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think this is the case everywhere. If it's not that, you know, I apologize, but anywhere that I've worked, it's been the law that seed that is sold, you know, for planting has to have a label on it. Um, I think, you know, various states probably have different small differences in reporting requirements for some things. But, you know, that's that's generally the case. If you go buy seed from from your co-op, uh, from Bass Pro Shop, from Cabela's, from uh, you know, some agricultural dealer doesn't matter. It's going to have a label on the back of it. And there's there's several important pieces of information on that label. The first one is just what species are in the on the mix. So um, and what proportion of the mix or of the bag are in those various species. So, you know, it's very telling. For example, if you go look at, you know, your local sporting goods store, start picking up bags of seed. You will see that a lot of those seeds for cool season plots have some proportion of the seed mix. And oftentimes most of the seed mix is rye grass, which very different than cereal rye and is not something that you want to plant in a food plot because it's a relatively noxious weed that's not very attractive to deer compared to other plants. So don't plant rye grass. Um, so that's the first thing, just what's in the bag. The second thing you can look at um, is what percentage of the of each species or of the, uh, you know, if it's just you're buying a bag of soybeans, for example, you know, just how much of that soybean is, uh, is going to germinate. And so there's, there's, it, it gets a little confusing, but it's worth your time to, to be able to think about this. So there's two things to look at, or I guess there's, there's three things to look at. There's the amount of seed that's in that bag. So for example, if you buy a bag of crimson clover, for the most part, it's going to be coated and it's going to, you know, on the label, it'll say crimson clover, um, anywhere from 50 to 70% of that bag is actually crimson clover seed. So if it's, you know, 50%, let's just say, suddenly you thought you were buying a 50 pound bag of seed, but you're actually only getting 20 pounds of crimson clover seed because half of the bag or half of the weight of the bag is, um, what's called inert material or coating. And that coating can have inoculants in it and things like that. Um, and I'll kind of come back to why it may or may not be important to uh, to consider, you know, buying something with a coating on it or whether it may be more economical and a better decision not to. Um, but anyway, 
you, you look at the percent that's actually seed and then the percent that's not seed. So whether it's inert material like coating or um, other plant seeds or weed seeds, all that information is right there on the bag, on the label. So once you figure out, okay, half of this bag is actually seed. And in some cases, it's like 99% of the bag is seed. But let's just keep keep going with this crimson clover that's coated example. Um, let's just say that 50% of the bag is inoculant. So you're suddenly down with a 50-pound bag to 25 pounds of actual clover seed. Well, the next question you need to ask is how much of that seed is actually going to germinate when you plant it? And so there's two things to look at there. There's a germination rate, and then there's a um, – it's worded different ways, but typically it'll be something like hard seed. Um, the germination rate is the amount of seed that is going to germinate when you plant it. So if you go out and plant that today and it rains on it, based on their testing of, of germination, um, most of the time anywhere from 80 to 90% of the seeds that you planted should germinate in an ideal environment. Um, so you have that you know, kind of baseline germination rate, and then you also have a percent hard seed. Hard seed are those seeds that have some dormancy period and then they're going to germinate later on. The seed, the the company, I think there's some level of marketing that goes on here to try to, because uh, sometimes it'll they'll combine the germination and hard seed to act as if the hard seed, you can count on it germinating. Um, basically, that hard seed may or may not germinate that year. So you really don't need to act as if that seed is going to germinate. Um, so to figure out how much seed's actually in the bag, all that you need to do is multiply the weight of the bag times the um, percent seed. So 50, let's just say in the instance of 50, uh, 50% uh, seed, 50% inert material, uh, you would multiply 50 pounds times 0.5. If the germination rate was, let's just say 80%, you would just do times 0.8 and then you're done. So you suddenly whittle down this 50 pound bag of seed down to, let's just say, a, you know, you actually have 17 pounds of crimson clover seed in that bag. Um, and the reason this is important to know is that um, seeding rates for food plots with various mixes designed by people, you know, such as Dr. Harper and others, they're all given based on PLS or pure live seed. So there's just no assumption that some percent of the seed is not going to germinate. Maybe the bag has other material in it. Um, so whenever, you know, we design mixes or companies design mixes or, you know, people that are evaluating planting rates design how much seed you should put out on a plot or in a field, they do it based on the percent, um, the, the pure live seed. They don't do it based on, well, you just put 50 pounds out of that bag out, out on the field and that, that'll grow and do well. Um, so you need to consider that. Um, and furthermore, you should really consider when you look at the label, um, how much of that seed is actually going to germinate. Um, if you're buying seed that has a 70% germination rate, for example, you might want to talk to your seed dealer about either knocking some uh, some dollars off the price tag or, or something because, you know, generally speaking, that's relatively poor and you're paying for a product that's not going to um, germinate as well as it was intended. So that's it, it's really important to look at that germination rate because if it's low, you either want to walk away or, you know, maybe try to negotiate the price or something like that because you're really buying, uh, you know, you're buying something that half of it or a portion of it's not going to germinate. Now, you know, you should never expect germination rate to be 100% because that that won't be the case. But you should expect at least 
80% probably, and in most cases, 85 to 90% germination rate, depending on the seed that you're buying. Um, for things like cereal grains, it's a little lower than that, but but certainly I wouldn't expect it to be, you know, lower than, let's just say, 75% germination rate. Um, so it's really, really important to consider when you're buying seed, the germination rate and how much you actually need, because that, that, percent, that uh, PLS or pure live seed is really what you need to calculate to figure out how much seed you need for a particular plot. Um, circling back for just a second, I mentioned the, you know, the coating on those seeds. Um, it's something to consider whether or not you want to buy seed that's coated. Um, most of the time it's coated with inoculants, uh, in the case of something like crimson clover or ladino clover. Um, and those inoculants are important because they provide the seed with the b- bacteria that legume seeds need, um, in order to have a relation. They have a symbiotic relationship with uh, with bacteria on the roots that allow them to produce nitrogen. So that's a really important thing. You you need to have that bacteria there for them to produce their own nitrogen. However, if you've planted clover within that field within the past couple of years, the bacteria is already in the soil. So you really don't need to buy uh, inoculated seed in that instance. Um, if you've never planted clover there, you want to buy the inoculated seed. But if you've planted clover in the last few years, you can actually save a bunch of money by just buying non-inoculated seed without any coating on it. And in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I did this with with some crimson clover we were looking to plant. And believe it or not, the co-op the co-op charged us the exact same for the non-coated and the coated seed, despite the fact that the coated seed gave us twice as many actual seeds. Uh, excuse me, the non-coated gave us twice as much seed as the coated bag. Um, so you can, you know, really get double the seed if you buy uncoated seed. Now, again, I'm not, you know, suggesting to do that in all instances, but, but it's something worth considering because it can get expensive if you're planting a lot of food plots and suddenly, you know, you have to buy two bags of seed for every, every single, uh, um, you know, quote unquote, what you would think of as a 50 pound bag, you have to buy two bags of seed to buy, to have 50 pounds of actual, you know, live seed that's going to germinate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good to know about the inoculate lasting for a few years. So I wasn't, wasn't aware of that. So yeah, it's a good way to save some money on your seed potentially. Yeah. And like I said, you know, first year you, you do a plot in, in a, in a particular species, if it's a legume, you definitely want to inoculate the seed. Um, but once you get past that first year, if you, you know, doing it, doing it within that particular species every couple of years, um, you really don't have to inoculate it. I mean, you know, like for instance, you know, farmers don't necessarily have to inoculate soybeans in a corn soybean rotation. I'm sure, you know, many do, but, uh, you don't necessarily have to because that bacteria lives within the soil and, and can live there for several years without, you know, having to add more. Yeah, and obviously all this is going to affect your seeding rate as well, I guess. I mean, if you're, um, you know, if you got a 50-pound bag of seed that are 50 pounds, yeah, the bag's 50 pounds, but it's only actually, you know, 20 pounds of pure live seed. And, and you know, the seeding rate calls for 20 pounds per acre of pure live seed. You're going to need to plant the entire 50 acres or 50 pounds on that acre. So, yeah, there's... There's a lot to consider there, I guess. A lot of it, it can get confusing for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's just it's always worth looking at the label with both herbicides and with food plot seeds. 
Um, the label can save you a lot of headache because if you, you know, if you don't look at the label on a uh, bag of seed and you just assume, well, it's all going to germinate, you may end up with a very sparse stand. Um, you could also end up in a situation where you introduce noxious weeds into the plot because um, that's that's another thing that the seed label has to disclose is if there's noxious weeds included in in the you know within that bag, and certainly you don't want to uh, don't want to plant something you know spend money to buy seed and then it oh that introduced some terrible weed into your field. So there's there's a lot to be said about just you know taking a second to look at the bag, um, you know do the math on how much seed you're actually going to need uh, based on the germination rate and the amount of actual you know, seed within the bag. Um, all that's very much so worthwhile doing. And, you know, especially when it comes down to, you know, some of the coatings and things like that, you know, the, there's of course the inoculant coatings, but a lot of food plot companies also put, you know, various coatings on the seed. Um, and, and those probably do, you know, help with germination rates and things like that. But at the end of the day, it also messes you up with your mixture. If, if you're just counting on, you know, your 10 pound bag having 10 pounds of seed in it and it actually only has seven pounds of seed in it, for example. So uh, always look at the label of, of your seed and, and do the math on how much you need to buy before you uh, get out there to plant your plot. Yeah. Well, let's move on to some some food plot maintenance. Let's say we, we've purchased our seed and, and planted it in the, the correct rate. Uh, we start to get some germination. Um. You know, what I guess what are some considerations there moving forward? I know, you know, I think and, and I'm again, I'm just as guilty as anybody, but we I think food plotters, we get this vision in our head that we want, you know, this perfect, clean, you know, production, agricultural quality food plot. And uh, you know, it's really not necessary for for a food plot for deer. I mean, can you speak on you know, do you think some level of, of weeds are acceptable in a food plot? I mean, do we have to have this this perfectly clean, spotless food plot growing out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think it's easy to go too far one way or the other on on you know either side of the spectrum with regards to this discussion because some guys just don't want a single weed in their plot, and uh, quite frankly, that's you know probably unrealistic and and probably in some cases they're controlling species that deer would want to eat just as well as the stuff that they had planted. Um, on the other hand though, you're spending the money and you might as well make sure that you, you, you know, have a plot that is going to be reasonably good and producing as much forage as possible, or at least as is reasonable, um, whenever you're, you know, trying to manage this plot. So I think you can go too far either way, but yeah, you definitely, you know, don't need to have, um, 100% clean plots that have no weeds in them at all. Um, of course, we want to minimize weed pressure, but you know, not at the ex- not at the expense that farmers would go. For example, a lot of the time. Um, really, I guess there's a, there's a few maintenance things I'd mention, um, and I'll kind of just di- just go by the the three different groupings we talked about earlier. So for warm season plots, um, your real maintenance is going to be um, in most cases. Um, Warm season annual grasses, such as foxtail and crabgrass, um, also goose grass. There's, you know, there's several other species, but you know, those warm season grasses can really compete with uh, the planted species. And so, um, 
That's why most of the time we don't include um, grasses in a mixture with uh, forage legumes such as cowpeas or joint vetch or uh, soybeans because if you include grasses in the mix, suddenly you've handcuffed yourself. You have no way to spray grasses that are coming in. Um, but if you plant something like cowpeas and sunflowers or cowpeas and joint vetch or soybeans by themselves or joint vetch by itself, whatever the case is, you, you have options for spraying over that plot with clethodim to control the uh, incoming uh, grasses that are they're competing with those species that you planted. So that's, you know, that's kind of the main maintenance thing I would think about. There are options for post-emergence um, with things like um, pursuit or imazethapir. Um, but typically, typically I would prefer to use that as a pre-emergence option versus a post-emergence because you're going to get a little bit better control. Um, but, you know, there are some post-emergence options, but really for, for summer, I think most of the time, um, clethodim is going to be the chemical you turn to most often to control um, your, your grass weeds, which are really a problem. Um, for cool season plots, um, there are some chemical options, but um, just to be quite honest with you, I would focus more on having a good stand uh, of, you know, of the plants and let them outcompete the cool season weeds because most of the time um, you're able to outcompete the cool season weeds by just having a good stand um, you don't have as noxious a weeds that are growing during that time period to compete with your planted species. And so if you really just focus on, you know, starting with a clean plot and then having a good full stand that's using up all the available growing space within the field, um, you should be able to avoid most of your weed issues. Um, you know, there's a few real noxious ones. Um, the ones that come to mind for, for cool season plots are um, curly dock and uh, especially thistle species. Those can be a little bit of a pain and you may or may not be able to get away with, uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of great selective herbicide options. So you may just have to spot spray those out. But um, for the most part, you can deal with most of your cool season weeds just by having a good stand, um, at least in annual plots. Um, and finally, with perennial plots, these are the ones where, you know, active weed control becomes an, an issue because you you're 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 not having any fresh reset where you kill the whole field and kill any weeds that are in it to plant or prepare it with uh, disking or things like that. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to maintain these species that you planted, these clovers or alfalfa or chicory uh, within that field for a long time. And this is where you've got to be persistent with staying on top of both cool season and warm season weeds, including both grasses and forbs. Um, and so, you know, spraying it, twice a year using things such as uh, pursuit or 2,4-DB or um, in the case of uh, several of those species, you can also use plateau. Um, those are, are good ones to control broadleaf weeds. Uh, you can also think about using clethodim again for controlling grass weeds, but really in most cases, you're probably going to have to spray the plot twice a year um, to maintain it. And that that's okay. You know, you, you going in and having two entries into the field, uh, once in the spring, once in the fall, and then, you know, having a mowing generally during the late summertime period. You're talking about three visits to the field a year. Uh, still not all that bad, but um, your perennial plots are where weed control becomes more paramount. Um, again, I, I feel like that's the most important weed control wise, followed by warm season plots and then cool season annuals. Typically, as long as you have a good establishment of the stand, your maintenance is should be relatively limited 
uh, with the exception of a few, you know, specific circumstances. Yeah, you mentioned uh, clethodim a couple times there for controlling, that'd uh, be controlling grasses in a broadleaf planting like clover. Yeah. Um, what what's what's some common names for that that somebody might be more familiar with? Yeah. So. Um, Clethodim, sometimes it's sold as just clethodim. Um, sometimes it's sold as, I've seen it as cleanse. I've seen it as um, select. I'm trying to think if, I think there's there's a few other common names that it's sold as, but um, a lot of the time you can just ask for clethodim. It's one of the, one of the few that um, I see decently commonly sold as just based on the, uh, you know, the herbicide name, but yeah. So it's commonly sold as like Clethodim 2EC, I think is what we buy a lot, um, or Select or Select Max. Um, those are, you know, relatively common, um, I guess, types of Clethodim that you would see sold. Okay. What about, I know there's an, another um, another grass herbicide as well that's often sold as, as Post or Post Plus. Yep. Um, that's a Cethoxidem. How does that compare to, to Clethodim? It's not. As um, it doesn't do quite as good of a job, it's, you know, a little weaker, I guess you would say, on several species. Um, it's not bad. Um, and if, if all you can get is post, then, you know, it's obviously better than nothing. And I've, I've, I've used it before and it, you know, it does fine. But uh, I, I feel like uh, clethodim, well, I don't feel like, you know, it is tougher on, on several of the grass species. And so we typically tend to use uh, clethodim as opposed to uh, cethoxidem. But again, if all you can get is cethoxidem, that's definitely better than nothing. Right. Okay. Well, what about we've we've discussed some herbicides there. What what about mowing? I know a lot of guys, you know, maintain their clover plots with with regular mowing, with the uh, the thought or the goal, I guess, of of controlling weeds and improving forage quality. But uh, is that is that really the case? Yeah. So <laughs> this is. Uh, one again, feel like I'm beating a dead we you know beat a dead horse on on this one, but it's that time of year you start to see guys fire up the bush hog and you know we can we can share the results of research as often as we want to and and people still you know want to do what they will and that's perfectly fine it's their right to do so but uh to keep to keep you know just give you the simple answer no um regular mowing is not necessary um we mow plots and we recommend mowing plots um once a year during the late summer period, whenever uh, the clover and, and other cool se- or uh, other perennial species are at their worst. And uh, and and don't worry about mowing it all summer long. Just let it ride and, and let it do what it will. Um, mowing only reduces forage biomass. It does not incru- improve the quality. It also decreases deer use of the plot. So basically by mowing, you're just decreasing the amount of forage that's available, which is then decreasing the use of the plot by deer. And uh, we know this because um, Dr. Harper designed an experiment that myself and Bonner Powell and uh, several other graduate students worked on for several years where we collected forage from plots we had mowed and not mowed. We also had cameras up. We looked at weed pressure. Uh, By the way, mowing does not help control weeds. in fact, it actually, if you mow regularly enough, you actually open yourself up to some more weed issues um, later on in the growing season, such as in August. So that's, you know, not helping anything. And uh, yeah, we pretty much looked at any facet uh, 
of um, or any aspect of of mowing that you might be you know thinking that it helps you with your clover plot and it really doesn't it doesn't help with weed control it doesn't help with forage it doesn't help with attractiveness all you're doing is decreasing forage availability and potentially opening the window for weeds so just park the mower all summer pull it out one time in august mow the plot um, just trying to you know clip the tops off all the weeds in the plot and get it ready for spraying um, you know during the early fall and that's all you need to do there's there's no need to mow regularly during the summertime. There you go. Save yourself from some expensive diesel fuel and <laughs> leave a tractor park. Yeah, go go fishing. Like there's tons <laughs> of fun things to do during the summer. Or, you know, go out and spot spray some non-native plants in early succession if you're wanting to do do stuff on your property. There's there's plenty of good stuff you can do during the summertime for deer that isn't hurting you like mowing your perennial plots is. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's something there's there's a little bit of farmer I think in all of us we just can't help but want to get on that tractor and get out there oh, and yeah. do something. Um, yeah, but but really yeah. when it comes to perennial plots, that summer time period, that early summer period is very productive. But you know, mid to late summer it's waning, and there's no need to worry about species such as ragweed or daisy fleabane or pokeweed that are growing in the plot because they're just adding forage. They're they're not hurting anything. They're adding forage. They're adding structure for turkeys. Um, there's, quite frankly, some benefit to having those species out there um, as opposed to, you know, keeping it short and just having a moonscaped clover plot that isn't really growing that well because it's hot and dry anyway. Right. Well, I know we have uh, we've covered a lot of ground here and and obviously in each one of these areas, man, you could dig you could you could do a whole episode on it. So. Um, there's there's only so deep we can go in an hour or so, but is there? I guess is there anything, any key thing that we've we've missed as far as the food plot planning and maintenance part of it that uh, is worth worth covering on this one? Well, I, I think just we didn't necessarily miss this, but I just want to you know kind of circle back and and end on this point. Food plotting can be a lot of fun, and it can really help with your hunting success. It can also you know, provide a lot of forage for deer and, you know, increase nutritional carrying capacity on a property. But there's there's no need to overthink things to the point at which you spend more time thinking and worrying about what you're going to plan or how you're going to plan it. Um, and you kind of overlook the basic principles. Just think about the basic principles of providing forage during stressful periods or during times that you want to attract deer for hunting and and really don't worry about the rest of it. You know, thinking about just Managing the plots as best as you can, controlling the weeds in them. Uh, those are the important things. Um, at the end of the day, you're probably not going to see more deer because you plan in mix A versus mix B unless there's some dramatic difference um, in you know attraction. Uh, really, if you're buying something that's a recommended mix that uh, you know has things that deer like to eat and you manage it appropriately, deer are going to use it. So um, I think it's worth just just noting that sometimes simplicity is is not a bad thing when it comes to food plots. That's right. Yep. Keep it simple. I think, uh, like, like you said, I'll right, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, do it right. Keep it simple. That's, that's a, just a kind of good, good way to look at things. Yep. That's, that's a good note to kind of wrap things up on there. And, uh, yeah, Mark, I, I, again, I, I thank you for taking time out here. Uh, you know, probably what, 
twice now in a, a few weeks time to to jump on here and and talk with me about food plots for for over an hour uh i i enjoyed it and i'm certain our our listeners are gonna enjoy it as well so I appreciate oh yeah it. absolutely and uh if you know if people have questions and they reach out to you we'll jump on here and do it again i'm more than happy to you know help provide information if people are liking it and enjoying it well, good deal. I'm sure uh, we will we will take you up on that at some point. I, I have no doubt. But yeah, hope you uh, hope you have a good turkey season and a good rest of your your burn season as well. Appreciate it. S- same to you. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Mark Turner. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends. <laughs>